Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone, and welcome back to TVB. This week, we are delighted to have Rich Howe joining us on the pod. Rich specializes in special situation investing, mainly corporate spin-offs. Thus, the name of his popular blog, Stock Spin-Off Investing. You can also find him on Twitter, and we'll put those links in the show notes. If you're not familiar with spin-off stocks, a spin-off is a new and separate company that's created when a parent company distributes shares in a subsidiary or business division to the parent company shareholders. Many famous investors have made terrific track records by following this type of investing, and probably the most famous is Joel Greenblatt, who managed Gotham through the end of the 80s through the first half of the 90s, investing in special situations with some great results. Greenblatt then went to immortalize this journey and teach other investors when he wrote his book, You Can Also Be a Stock Market Genius. We'll touch on that title a little bit later in the episode. Juan and Rich will also discuss what is special situation investing, specifically in the world of spinoffs, how behavioral biases impacting special situations, what special situation looks like outside of the states, and finally, the challenge of special situation investing in a world where there is a lack of price discovery. Enjoy. Rich Howe, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm doing great, Juan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I've been looking forward to this. Where do we find you today? So I am based in, uh, outside, say Boston, I'm outside of Boston. Um, I, you know, work from my home most of the time. And uh, so I am in a suburb west of Boston right now. Okay, that's great. For those that don't know who you are, that have never heard of a spin-off or a special situation investing, could, could you please provide us with a little bit of your background? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I am kind of Boston born and raised. So I grew up south of Boston in a town called Milton. And my parents were both professional investors. My dad was a large cap value portfolio manager. My mom was a bond analyst. And so I, for whatever reason, always gravitated towards investing. So through high school and college, I was always involved with the investing clubs and doing internships, uh, doing an, an equity research. Always loved, you know, investing on my own. And so I got, you know, I graduated college in 2006 and got a job at Eaton Vance, which is an equity research for or a large cap asset manager or a asset management firm. Uh, had since been acquired by Morgan Stanley, but I was in the equity research group, so that was a good place to start my career. 
covered a, a broad range of sectors, worked with some really smart people, you know, earned the CFA designation. And then eventually, you know, after seven years, I think I, I ended up switching and working for City Private Bank. I actually switched gears a little bit. I was focused more on private equity research. So really diligencing managers and learning about the private equity business. Did that for five years, but I really missed the public markets and I was still investing a lot on my own. Uh, the one, you know, my time at Eaton Vance was was wonderful, but the one thing that was just a little bit challenging was that we were always focused on kind of the biggest, the biggest stocks. And I, you know, I think while I was at Eaton Vance, I read Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, which, you know, I'm sure you've read and really dives into spinoffs and special situations investing. And it's like a light bulb went off. I just, I just thought this is, this is awesome. This is kind of what I want to focus on. So that's what my personal portfolio was was really focused on you know since I, since I really read that book and when I was at city I really wanted to do something entrepreneurial and so I figured hey why not try to start a investing platform and, and newsletter focused on special situations investing and so I ended up losing uh, leaving city in 2018 to you know launch my newsletter stock spinoff investing and I've been investing you know in spinoffs and and publishing since then, in terms of like what a spinoff is, and I'm sure we, we'll get into more of it, it's basically when a public company breaks up into two or more public companies. And the reason why a company would do that is because generally Wall Street and investors prefer simplicity. It's easier to value, easy to understand. Two individual pure play companies as opposed to a bigger conglomerate. So that's that's a brief overview, but happy to dive, dive deeper into any, any anything you any questions you have. And so I think that you mentioned just now that you had started uh, with a newsletter, but today mm -hmm. you have a blog or or what's your main platform? If people want to get to know more about the spinoffs and about your work and what's the main platform where they should go to? Yeah, so I would say I would say two two things. So yeah, so I have run a website right now called Stock Spinoff Investing, and I have a free blog there, and I also have a a premium newsletter. If you you know want to know you know what which spinoffs are are my favorites, you know that's that's where I, I share them and, and which spinoffs I invest in. So I would say check out the website stockspinoffinvesting.com, or I'm also you know fairly active on Twitter, and so I'm just. You could, you know, Google stock spinoffs, uh, Twitter, and you know, should pop pop right up. My my handle is at stock spinoffs with two S's. So the stock spinoffs with one S was taken, so I, I had to throw another S on there. But I would say those are the two places where I'm publishing the the most most stuff. My website, stockspinoffinvesting.com, and then Twitter as well. I have to say that on a personal note, I do think that your Twitter account is very generous with the information that you provide on this specific, very unique, say, style of investing. You've mentioned spin-offs quite a bit during the our like first few minutes on this session, but you also do special situations. So why don't we maybe start by defining what is special situation investing? Because a spin-off is just like one subsegment of that. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And just to reemphasize your point on Twitter, I found so much value and met so many great people on Twitter. I know Twitter gets a lot of flack from people, you know, rightfully so in many instances, but I personally have found so much value specifically in terms of finding good investment ideas, meeting other other people. Like I think we connected on Twitter. So yeah, totally, totally echo how valuable, you know, Twitter can be. In terms of 
special situation investing, you know, I think the best way to describe it is when you're investing in a situation which has a pre-identified timeline for when the situation or the catalyst is going to play out. In other words, you're not depending, you're not saying, hey, you know, this company's going to grow, you know, 10%. And I think the market, it's currently valued at eight times earnings, but its peers are valued at, you know, 15 times earnings. I think over time, the market is going to understand that this company, the quality of its earnings and revenue growth is underappreciated and it's going to be re-rated higher. With a special situation investing, there's a specific timeline and catalyst for the value to be unlocked. You know, they obviously don't always work out, but I'd say the best example of I maybe maybe there are two, but the best examples of special situation investing are probably liquidations or merger arbitrage. And so a liquidation is exactly what it sounds, where a company comes out and says, hey, we're going to liquidate all our assets and pay the remaining cash after we cover our liabilities out to investors. And oftentimes it's very straightforward. A company will say, hey, we are going to pay out or they'll provide an SEC document that outlines potential distributions. We're likely to to pay out roughly $2 per share over the next two years or three years in distributions. And if the stock is trading at $1, obviously you could have a potential 100% return over two to three years. It's not that obvious and that laid out, but oftentimes there are projections that you can follow. And of course, you can't just say, okay, management said XYZ, I'm going to buy it because it looks like it's going to be a good review. You have to do your own analysis and analyze whether or not you think the assumptions are reasonable. But the cool thing about special situation investing is no matter what the market does, if the company has two dollars of two dollars in uh, in cash of assets, then they're going to pay it out over a period of three years. You should generate that return regardless of what the market does. So I think that's a nice appeal of special situation investing that it's not necessarily as correlated with with the market. And then the other obvious example is merger arbitrage, where a company comes in and says, "Hey, you know, I'm going to buy buy your company for you know hundred dollars a share. Maybe the stock jumps to ninety five dollars a share." And you can make that last five dollars per share over a period of, of five or you know of, of five or six months. And so you have a specific timeline. It's going to be theoretically uncorrelated to the market. There's a different skill set. You have to understand regula- the regulatory environment, whether you know a, a whole host of issues. But I'd say those are the two most best examples of special situations investing. And then, of course, you know, there's spinoffs, which, which you know, I tend to focus on, but I like the other, other one example. Liquidations are an area of the market that I think are pretty interesting right now. I look at a lot of very small companies, and there's a lot of biotechs that are trading below net cash, and so there's some situations where you can bet on a liquidation even before it's announced or something good happening. But I, yeah, I'm interested in all special situations, you know, stock spinoff investing is the name of my site, but I don't necessarily just invest in spinoffs. I also invest in other special situations as well. Yeah. So guess what are the main challenges of investing in special situations? Is it a matter of their complexity because there are some special situations like bankruptcies or turnarounds, restructurings, which can be quite complex in nature? Or is it the fact that they tend to be poorly covered or poorly advertised? Is it the fact that they tend to happen in small cap situations that are less known by market participants? 
I think everything that you just said is all <laughs> correct. So I think specifically bankruptcies. So I haven't really invested in many bankruptcies because I think you have to be a pretty sophisticated investor and really know, have a much stronger fixed income mindset than I do. So I don't really invest necessarily in, in bankruptcies. I do invest in kind of post-bankruptcy reorganizations. So when the company's coming out of bankruptcy and maybe they've cleaned up their capital structure, like Garrett Motion is the name of a company that actually was a spinoff and ended up going bankrupt, came out of bankruptcy. And I think that was that was a pretty interesting situation. But I think in a situation like going into a bankruptcy, you know, there's a lot I'm trying to be, I'm trying to compete with. Uh, I'm trying to compete with people that aren't that smart, and I think a lot of very smart, sophisticated investors are 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 focused on on distressed debt and bankruptcy, and so that's not an area of the market that I really focus on. But yeah, I think that it's also to your point, it's hard to find information. So if you're new to investing or you don't really focus on spinoffs, you don't necessarily know where to look. So there's what's called a Form 10, and then the part of the Form 10 called the information statement is where the spinoff will publish basically its pro forma results and will give you details into how the business has historically performed, who they're competing against, and you know how, how many shares management owns and what their incentives are. And so if you don't know where to look, you're not going to find out anything about the spinoff until it just shows up in your account. And so there's a there's a lot of it's not that complex but you just kind of have to know where to look so i think that's a challenge i mean even basic things like knowing the capitalization of a spinoff it, most times it'll take a, a month or two before the proper capitalization shows up in yahoo finance or anything like that or even facts that are bloomberg so knowing how many shares outstanding very simple stuff how much debt how much cash company has on its balance sheet is pretty tricky with spinoffs and then the other the other caveat is you're totally right that a lot of the times they're smaller companies. And I think sometimes those are the most interesting opportunities because those are the situations where you see indiscriminate selling pressure where a large cap portfolio manager or an index funds owns a large cap stock. They get spun off a small state, a, a stake in a small company, and they're just going to be sellers no matter what, because it represents such a small portion of their larger portfolio. And maybe it's not even within their mandate. Maybe they don't have, a, they have a mandate where they can't own small cap stocks. So I think those are, those make it tricky, but I think that's, that's probably where the opportunity is as well. Um, special situations, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, special situations are not really new. They have been around for many generations and many famous, well-known investors have done very well and generated a lot of their very good performance from special situations. There's even this book from the 1960s from Morris Schiller that walks you uh, through all of the different types of special situations out there with very good case examples of companies back in the 60s or 70s. So how come this type of investing is so widely unknown and hasn't been picked up more? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because from my perspective, it seems like it has been picked up more. Uh, but I think that might just be my echo chamber. You know, we're on, on Twitter and I follow a bunch of other special situation investors. And, you know, everybody that subscribes to my you know newsletter is focused on that. And so I feel like there is a lot of interest. But I think I think part of it is that I, I, a lot of the companies that are that are special situations focused, I, I guess you can't really manage 
a massive pool of capital and just be focused on special situations. I think Greenblatt in his book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, says, you know, there's still an opportunity in spinoffs. You know, maybe once you get to a billion dollars in AUM, you might be a little bit capacity constrained mm -hmm. in ter terms of some situations that you can invest in. But hey, managing a billion of, of capital is is pretty good. That's a good that's a good problem to have. Yeah. And I think a lot of special situations, I think kind of Buffett started doing special situations in a lot of workouts, but eventually you get to a point where the scale is just not there. And so I think it's a natural thing whereby you generate good performance, you're by definition going to have to move on to a different strategy. And so I think that's maybe part of the reason that it's not more understood in, in the mainstream. I mean, you look at Buffett, the types of companies that he's investing in now, even Greenblatt, right? He's he's more of a uh, a magic formula type investors looking at, at good companies trading at uh, cheap valuations as opposed to just focused on special situations. So I think it's a, I think it's a man. I think it's it's pr probably primarily that in that the investors that are investing in these space are kind of more. I won't, don't want to say fringe investors because that doesn't sound right. They're very smart investors, but they're probably managing smaller pools of capital and they're not going to be, you know, generally on the front page of CNN or, or the wall street journal. It's going to be, um, they're going to be, you know, the investors that are making massive investments in Nvidia and Apple and Microsoft are going to be on the front page of the wall street journal. So I think that's probably primarily the reason why it's not more well-known to let's say the average investor. Greenblatt's first 10 years managing, uh, his hedge fund in the late 1980s, early 1990s, his track record is legendary, and that was the product of investing in special situations. Do you know how much capital was he managing at the time? So I think he started with, I don't know, I'm going from memory, but I think he started with a very small pool of capital, you know, like 25 or 50 million. But then I think he got it up to through performance and through attracting other investors, I think over a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, after 10 years, he said, okay, enough is enough. You know, I'm just going to manage my own capital, which I don't blame him. I think if I were in his shoes, I probably would have done the same thing. Yeah, well, after compounding at 40% or something, I think that he was, uh, he had all the right to do that. Have you ever met Joel Greenblatt? So I have not, no. So I read and listen to all things Joel Greenblatt, but I haven't, I haven't met Joel. So if anybody knows him and wants to give me an intro and he <laughs> would give me the time of day, I would, I would, I would love to meet him. That's great. I, I think one of the one of the cool things about Joel that I really so that I love so much, and Peter Lynch, I feel like has the same style, is that they're both obviously incredibly smart, but they have this way of describing situa investing situations in very plain language that makes it really easy to understand. And I don't think many investors can do that. I mean, Greenblatt's book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, is just I think it's hilarious. It's super interesting, super funny and a really good book. And then all of Peter Lynch's books are the same way. And so I love both those guys for those two reasons. And then I also just love the fact that they kind of stepped out of the game. So Peter Lynch, you know, had a crazy track record, 30% or whatever it was, managing uh, the Magellan Fund. And then after 10 years, he said, you know what, like, I'm spending way too much time at work. I'm going to spend time with my family, manage my own, own money. Greenblatt essentially did the same thing. And, and I actually have a friend who's a sell-side analyst who covers small and micro cap stocks. 
and he gets emailed once in a while. I think Peter Lynch is like 85 and Peter Lynch emails him once in a while <laughs> and asks him about these tiny micro cap stocks. And so he just still has a love for the game that is just so fun, so fun to see. But I think he really realized what's important. Like after you have a certain amount of money, you know, I don't know, there's, it's probably a better use of your time to hang out with friends and family and still invest your own money. And you contrast that to Buffett, who's undis, you know, indisputably a hero, probably the best investor ever. But I read, you know, his, the book Snowball and I, which, you know, I loved and it talked about him just coming home from work and just going up to his office and reading annual reports for the, until it was time for bed and basically just ignoring his kids. Hmm. And there's a story where one kid fell down the stairs and he just stepped over his kid and walked oh. up the stairs to, to read annual reports. And I don't think this is necessarily even his fault. Like, I just think he is, he is such a smart focused investor and that's why he's become so good, but that just doesn't resonate with me. Like I, uh, obviously my kids drive me crazy, but like, <laughs> I want to spend time with them at the end of the day. Um, and I kind of more resonate with Greenblatt and, and Lynch in terms of kind of, you know, what's the most important thing. Um, but it's, it's really fun. I mean, I, I try to consume, you know, as we all do everything that's put out there from, from any investor of, of that quality. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. This is a podcast that has tried to explore behavioral biases a lot over the course of the last four years. And there's a lot of human behavior behind the inefficiencies of special situation investing and spinoffs. So I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through some of the most uh, commonly found behavioral biases around special situations. Of course. And yeah, you, you, you know, you're, you're probably more of an expert on this than I am just because this is what this podcast is, is exploring. So I would love to hear your takes too. Uh, from my, my perspective, I would say that the most common, and I don't think this is unique necessarily to special situations, but when I, th when I think of the, the potential biases that I have and that come to play with special situ situations, I was going to call it loss aversion, but I think the appropriate, the appropriate term is the disposition effect, which is basically the tendency to basically sell assets that have made you money and to hold on to assets that are losing money. And I don't know, I think that's the disposition effect, but it's, in other words, you know, as Peter Lynch would say, you know, let your, let water your flowers and cut your weeds. And I think investors and I definitely have a tendency where maybe, maybe I'm selling too early and maybe I'm hanging on to my losers to, uh, To, 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 for too long and maybe just not cutting bait. So I think that's one thing that I definitely you know struggle with. Again, I don't know if that's necessarily unique to special situations investors. Another thing that I don't think is it necessarily a behavioral bias, but I definitely feel it. And I think it's related to the disposition effect is just thesis creep. So you come in and the great thing about special situations investing is there's generally a timeline when for when this thesis is supposed to play out, but obviously things get delayed, things get called off and you learn. And, and so you have to make the decision, do I cut bait here or do I just move on or, or do I just stick it out? And I think a lot of times I would be better 
like for instance, there was a merger arbitrage situation that I invested in where basically the merger, uh, the the investor that was going to take over the company backed away from the merger in the stock, but in the stock sold off and it looked really, really cheap. But I should have, instead of just saying, hey, the stock looks really, really cheap, I'm not going to sell. I probably should have just cut bait at that point because the thesis had really changed. My thesis had really changed. So that's another bias that I think I'm becoming more aware of. And then I think the the other probably big bias is just the overconfidence effect that you know I and most investors, you tend to have more confidence in your own judgments than is probably reasonable. And a perfect example of this is just, so, you know, when I'm doing an investment case, I'm always trying to think of what's the upside, what's the downside. And I found that historically, and I'm adjusting my underwriting now, but I found that my downside estimates for small and micro gap stocks are generally too conservative. Usually if they're, if, if the thesis is going to go off the rails, the downside case is a lot uh, larger than I, than I initially thought. And so I think that stems from overconfidence, but I think just being aware of these potential biases can help you potentially combat them. I think that when you read, you can also be a stock market genius, which Joel Greenblatt has said is a terrible title to have in a book. <laughs> or when you read Special Situation Investing by Marius Schiller, which I actually don't know if that was the original title of the book. They make it sound very straightforward, but actually Special Situation Investing can be quite complex. So for instance, a thrift in the U.S., it's very difficult to invest in one of them, correct? Like one to identify them, two to know what they are, and three there are technicalities around how the thrift goes through a demutualization, and I hope that I got that uh, word right, mm -hmm. uh, process and the timing that is involved in that. So I think that there is well a, a degree of complexity maybe attached to it. I think that there's maybe uncertainty on whether or not the catalyst will come through. Actually, you've mentioned the word catalyst a few times before, and many times people say, well, if you already know the catalyst in advance, then the market would price it uh, already. But actually, in special situations, that doesn't seem to be the case. Why do you think that that's not the case? So I think it just comes down to just nobody's nobody's really done the, wor done the work. So like, for instance, some of my favorite investment opportunities are where so I love situations where it's a small cap stock and it's sold off because of, you know, the S&P index holds a bunch of a big position in the parent company and it receives shares in the spinoff. So it's obviously going to be a natural seller. But so my one of my favorite situations to invest in and the perfect example is VF Corp spun off a, a jeans company, a denim company called Contour Brands, and they own the uh, the the Lee, the Lee brand of jeans and a couple of other brands as well. And the stock, you know, the spinoff is going to be a small cap. VF Corp at the time was a 30 billion market cap company with brands like North Face and Vans and Timberland and other brands that were growing a lot faster. And so it was, it was a classic example of a of a good co spinning off a quote unquote bad co. But uh, uh, Contour Brands actually had a pretty good business and, you know, demand for jeans and denim, you know, has been around, I think, since the gold rush and, you know, the styles may change, but people, you know, tend to tend to like to wear jeans. I think people are going to be wearing jeans in a hundred years, and so I, I, I kind of had confidence that this business was a stable business. You know, generate pretty good returns on capital. Uh, historically, had generated some nice free cash flow, but I knew that there was going to be indiscriminate selling pressure. And sometimes you have indiscriminate selling pressure, 
but you just don't know when the stock's going to re-rate, mm-hmm. right? It's just stocks can stay, stay cheap for a long, long time. And many value investors are painfully aware of this. But the cool thing about Contour Brands was that they had disclosed in their Form 10 information statement th- their dividend policy. They said, we're going to pay out, I think it was $2.24. They said, that's what we think we're going to pay out. And what you could do, and this doesn't require any sort of complex analytical skills, is you said, okay, you know, at what share price would it be very attractive from a dividend yield perspective to buy to buy Contour Brands? And then you could also look at the other apparel companies like Hanes and Levi's and see what kind of yields those brands were gen- or stocks were, were, were generating. And so basically we saw some very heavy indiscriminate selling pressure. And I knew that, that at some point, you know, probably the first time they reported a quarter, they were going to declare this quarterly dividend. And it was going to, at the time, you know, that I bought into to that stock, I think the stock was yielding like eight or eight or nine percent. And the, the, the next highest yielding stock at that point was was Haynes Corp, which was yielding like three percent. So it just didn't make sense versus comps. And I knew when other investors just saw and it, it looked like it was just going to be out of the blue. But if you had read the form 10 form 10 statement, you would have known that they were going to pay this dividend. It was a big part of their, you know, their value proposition. And so I think part of it with special situations investing is that the catalysts aren't as well known. You kind of have to do the work. And it's not like you have to do complex analytical, have a complex analytical framework to to have an insight there. It was just reading the dividend policy. And so I, there's been a couple situations like that where there's been a dividend that has been previewed in the Form 10. And if you just run the math and, and buy it at what you think is a pretty attractive dividend yield, you know that the catalyst, when the dividend is is played out, it's going to force the stock uh, to re-rate. And so, and then the other thing is, my favorite, uh, other favorite special situations investings or spinoffs are when there's like a hundred percent spinoff of a company because it's just going to force the market to value both companies independently. And like you know, there are carve outs where a company will just IPO a twenty percent of its division, and a lot of times people point to this as a catalyst as to why the stock should re-rate. But there are plenty of some of the part stories where, on a some of the parts basis, the stock looks incredibly cheap, but nobody cares. Nobody's gonna nobody's gonna pay pay attention unless you you hundred percent separate those two companies and force the market to independently value those two entities separately. If a parent company just IPOs 20% of a division, the market is just going to look at it as a conglomerate and assign a, a decent conglomerate discount. So yeah, catalysts, catalyst investing, I totally hear you that a lot of investors say, hey, the catalyst doesn't really matter. Um, and I think in a lot of cases, it doesn't. But if you have a unique insight where you don't think somebody is really paying attention, I think that's when th- that's where it can really pay off. You've mentioned spinoffs before, and I'm going to go in on a limb here and say that that's your favorite special situation, spinoffs. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Why have spinoffs been historically great sources of opportunity, and what distinguishes a good spinoff from a bad one? Yeah, so spinoffs have historically, you know, there are a bunch of studies that have gone back and looked at various time periods. And, you know, spinoffs have generally, you know, outperformed the market and done done quite well. I would say that it, it varies over the time horizon. So 
there can be periods that spinoffs do very well. There can be periods when spinoffs as a whole don't do very well. They tend to be smaller companies, right? So when, you know, the mega caps, the, you know, ultra mega caps are performing well, you know, that's not going to include uh, many spinoffs. So I would say I would totally agree that spinoffs generally outperform, but, you know, that's not going to be the case, obviously, every year. I think that uh, spinoffs outperform there's like a, a variety of reasons, but I think generally when a, I think it, it starts out that spinoffs are generally distributed to investors. You know, when you IPO a company, the company that's going public hires an investment bank to run a process, meet with a bunch of institutional investors and basically drum up interest. And then they're usually only selling a portion of the shares outstanding. So there's some artificial pressure to create a very high price. Uh, it's the opposite, generally with spinoffs, where 100% of the company is distributed to investors that never chose to buy that specific company. You know, if a company bought, for instance, uh, United Technologies back in the day, they wanted theoretically to buy a conglomerate. They didn't want to buy a HVAC company, a aerospace company, and an elevator company. And so generally because spinoffs are distributed they're not bought they tend to start trading at a very low valuation usually below the valuation of their of their peers and then i think it's just true that the more management or anybody is really focused on one thing the better you are going to do and so generally you know pure plays just are are better able to allocate capital the way that they see the, the way that they see fit are able to invest in projects that were maybe ignored when they were under the uh, corporate conglomerate umbrella and so i think it's a combination of being able to you know start at a low valuation which is generally the case from a, like an ev to ebitda or a price to earnings or price to cash flow basis and then that focus to really allocate resources where they needed to be out allocated uh, through the eyes of the management team, I think I think those are the big drivers as to why spinoffs have generally been, performed uh, quite well. In terms of you know what I look for for spinoffs, I it's really analyzing a spinoff is really no different from from my perspective at least uh, from analyzing any company. Like generally, you want to invest in a company that has a competitive advantage that isn't too capital intensive that is generally growing that is trading at a very uh, reasonable valuation. So one thing you have to be a little careful of is, is in spinoffs, a lot of times the parent company will saddle the spinoff with debt. And so you, ha you have to make a determination of whether the debt is reasonable and whether what the interest rate on the debt is. And if it looks like it's going to be too much for the spinoff, that's a big issue. You know, generally, the two things that I really try to avoid are companies that are in secular decline. Uh, you know, generally, it's not good to invest in companies that are in secular decline. And it's also not good to invest in companies that are in secular decline that also have a lot of debt. So those are the two, the two big things, you know, that I that I tend to avoid. 
Uh, but generally, it's going to be on a case-by-case basis. You know, I'm looking for a business that isn't in secular decline, maybe is out of favor, like Contour Brands is a jeans company. You know, nobody was getting that excited about owning, you know, a denim company, but it was a pretty good business trading at a, a pretty good valuation. And you had that hard catalyst for the stock to, to re-rate. But really, it's just looking for the same things that anybody would be looking for. You know, good businesses that are growing with good management teams that generally have have skin in the game, that are are making the right decisions and really doing what they said they were going to do. A big red flag for me is when a company says, hey, we're not going to make an acquisition. We're going to be focused on organic growth. And then they go out and make a big acquisition because it was available and it was strategic. Alon, a spinoff from Eli Lilly did that. And that you know, ha- has not worked out. So that's you know one red flag that I generally look for. But that's probably not specific to spinoffs. You probably want any management team to clearly articulate that articulate their their strategy and then really execute on that strategy. But I would say kind of the big things to look for are companies that are at least good companies, you know, not companies in secular decline and then companies that that generally don't have too debt too much debt, that's a really good starting point. How many spin-offs are there in any given year in a market like the US? Yeah, so they're generally about 20. So it kind of varies, you know, between probably 10 and 30 spinoffs in any given year. But there's generally about about 20 when there are times of crisis, like during the COVID pandemic, a lot of spinoffs will get paused or they'll just get pushed out. And then during periods when there's not much dislocation, new spinoffs will get announced. But in any given year, you know, usually there's, you know, call it maybe, you know, 15 to 25 spinoffs. What's your opinion about doing special situation investing outside of a deep market such as the US? Yeah, like international markets? Yeah. So I I love them, to be honest. So I'm more focused on the US because that's where I'm based. And I know the lay of the land better. Everything's written in English. So, you know, I don't really speak any foreign languages. I know where to look for the SEC filings. I know where to find the Form 10s. And so that's my main area of focus. But especially today, like I just think valuations in the U.S. versus developed market and especially emerging markets are pretty stretched, especially in the large cap and the mega cap space. And so I'm very interested in international spinoffs. One of my I think my, my best you know, personal investment was an international spinoff. So a company called Fungella Resources, it was a spinoff of Anglo-American but it was basically Thungella was a was and is a coal company, and it was being spun off by Anglo American, which was a more diversified metals and mining company. And the Thungella was focused on coal, which you know nobody nobody really wanted to own. N- nobody probably still wants to own. But the thesis basically was that it was really simple. I mean, the stock was trading at, first of all, it was a big market cap company, Anglo-American, spinning off a, a small cap company. So that's that's a good a good setup generally. And then it was just crazy cheap. So the stock, Thungello, was just trading at 1.5 times earnings, and it had no debt. So sometimes you'll see really cheap companies, but they will have a ton of debt. So in this case, there was no debt. And then the other thing, getting back to the hard catalyst, was this company had said, we are going to have a, a dividend policy where we're going to pay out at least 30% of our of our free cash flow as a dividend. And at the time, coal prices hadn't quite skyrocketed yet, but they were they were trending up. And if you just ran, you know, I'm not a commodity analyst or in or a coal analyst, but if you just ran a basic model 
uh, based and plugged in kind of the, the the price and the discount that Thungella typically has to sell its coal at and its its typical operating costs, you could get to a free cash flow estimate. And then you said, okay, they're going to pay out 30% of this. And it worked out to like a 25% dividend yield. And so my thesis there was like, hey, it's a really cheap stock. Stocks can stay cheap for a very long time. But the catalyst here is that people are going to pay attention and say, hey, this thing's going to be not only is it generating a lot of cash, but they're gonna they're gonna return that cash to shareholders, and so that was the thesis there. And that was a you know that was a wonderful you know wonderful company that that ended up you know doing quite well. But you know, so I'm always looking for international spinoffs. So if you or any of your listeners have ideas, definitely you know reach out to me on Twitter or through my website because I'm you know I generally write up every U.S. spinoff that's going to be coming to market. But the international spinoffs, I only really dive in if it's a really interesting situation and I can get up to speed pretty quickly. That's really interesting. In a world dominated by passive investing, where most returns are being generated by large mega caps, isn't price discovery for special situations challenged? And I, I ask you this question because David Einhorn recently made lots of noise among the value investing community when he made the exact point and commented, uh, and commented on how markets work today. Yeah, so I it, what what Einhorn said. So I love that episode, and I think it was on Invest with the Best. And I, 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 you know, I don't, I don't know if he's he's right. He's obviously a really smart guy, but I've definitely what he said resonated with me. And it's it's really I take a very similar approach. And the perfect example is like Contour Brands, which we knew was going to declare a dividend, and I knew that that was going to be a hard catalyst where the company is returning cash to shareholders and it's going to force investors to pay attention. Thungella Resources, same thing. I thought once that dividend is initiated, we are going to, that's going to force the market to actually pay attention and actually care. And and I, I agree. I, I think that I've just noticed that companies can stay cheap for, for really long. And maybe if you just don't care and you hang on to them for 10 years, you're going to make your return. But I personally am not that patient. I wish I wish I could be, but it's really hard to keep patience when the market just continues to undervalue. Say you come up with a DCF valuation that's pretty conservative in the market, the stock continues to trade at a massive discount to that. It's pretty hard to, to keep your patience in that scenario. So one thing that I've that I've uh, paid attention to and emphasized is just returning cash, companies returning cash to shareholders. And I think Einhorn basically said like, hey, I want to invest in companies that are returning cash to shareholders, either through dividends or through buybacks, because if uh, because then at least I get, you know, I get 10 or 20% of my capital back each year. So a company called Unit Corporation is a name, you know, that I like and disclosure I own, but it's it's a small cap OTC company that's that is uh, returning, you know, they just declared a $2.50 quarterly dividend. The stock trades at about 50 bucks. So that's, you know, roughly a 20% dividend yield. And so, so that's great because they have a ton of cash in their balance sheet. They continue to generate more cash. And, you know, worst case scenario, they're going to continue to pay out these quarterly dividends. So even if the stock doesn't re-rate, at least we're going to get that, that nice dividend per, uh, that nice dividend every every quarter and and hopefully some buybacks at the current valuation. But I think it I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think some investors are much better at, and maybe you have to kind of tap into a little or or factor in a little momentum into your investing strategy. 
uh, figuring out, you know, which stocks are likely to re-rate. But if you're like just a pure value investor that's just going on the metrics and don't have any sort of momentum overlay, I think really relying on companies returning cash to shareholders is a nice way to generate returns, even if the market, you know, never really re-rates your stock. That's really interesting. Richard, we're coming to an end of our session and we always ask our guests for a book recommendation. And I'm going to be a little bit cheeky here and I'm going to say that you cannot recommend Joel Greenblatt's book. Yes. So, okay. Can't recommend Joel Greenblatt's book. So I'm going to recommend a different book that uh, is not an investment book. And I just reread it for the second time, just finished it last night. It's, oh my gosh. I'm, oh, it's, it's called Total Recall. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography. And it's just amazing. He basically grew up in Austria, poor family, basically completely self-made. Uh, his writing style is super easy to understand. I'm sure he had help help writing the book, but he basically went from you know wanting to become a bodybuilder, come to the U.S., and then he made a ton of money being entrepreneurial, uh, being basically a real estate investor, working extremely hard. Then he wanted to transition into being. A U.S. a movie star. He was able to accomplish that, despite the fact that everybody said you have a crazy accent. We can your longest your name is too long. We can't put that on the movie billboard. And then he became ended up becoming the governor of of California. And so, and he talks about all his lessons learned, his mistakes that he made along the way. And I just love autobiographies. Andre Agassi's autobiography is amazing. Uh, the guy that founded uh, Boston Boston Beer Works, uh, Sam Adams, wrote a book. Jim uh, Cook, I think his name is, wrote an autobiography, Quench Your Thirst, which I love. But yeah, I'd say the book recommendation that I would recommend would be Ar um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Total Recall is the name of the book. Highly recommend it. That's fantastic. Rich Howe, thank you very much for your time and for coming to the Value Perspective Podcast. Juan, thank you so much for interviewing me. Really enjoyed it.